Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director of the Long Now Foundation. This seminar comes from Dory Clark, an author and professor who has written a book called The Long Game that focuses on a facet of long-term thinking that we often don't get a chance to talk about. Here at Long Now, we've had several talks that explore long stretches of time with astronomers, physicists, and geologists that talk about processes over millions or even billions of years. But for this talk, we'll be exploring our own personal Long Now and how it relates to the way we live our own lives. When Long Now got started in 1996, our co-founder Stuart Brand wrote an essay explaining our mission of promoting long-term thinking. In that essay, he wrote, quote, Civilization is revving itself into a pathologically short attention span. The trend might be coming from the acceleration of technology, the short horizon perspective of market-driven economics, the next election perspective of democracies, or the distractions of personal multitasking. Long Now was founded to serve as a counterbalance to that short-sightedness that plagued society then and still does now. Over the years, we have dealt with a lot of the subjects Stuart brought up in that first essay, but it's much less often that we deal with that personal multitasking part. So when we saw this book, we knew it was a perfect opportunity to look not necessarily at the next 10,000 years, but at least the arc of our own lives and how we think about the long term in a much more personal way. Before we hear from Dory, a quick thank you. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Along our journey today, we'll also be including a part of a past talk from Tiffany Schlein, who spoke to us about making space for contemplation and long-term thinking in our lives through what she calls a tech Shabbat. But first, let's hear from Dory Clark on The Long Game. So we've all been through a lot over the last couple of years. We had to recalibrate. We had to suddenly discover terminology that we had never used before, social distancing. We suddenly had to stand in line at the grocery store. We suddenly had to find new ways of relating to each other. We fled from downtown, uh, and certainly that was the case in San Francisco as well as New York, and started living our lives in so many ways online. And we had to do it fast. There had been, you know, for 15, 20 years, scholars of the study of work from home and remote work and how could it, how could it possibly function and what would it look like and what would it take for companies to be able to accede to this future that everybody thought was inevitable but would happen over the course of decades. And it turns out, of course, that somehow we figured it out because we had to in the course of two or three weeks. We were all thrown into it. And we discovered pretty rapidly that there was a downside to that that we would have to cope with. But we did. We figured it out. The pandemic forced us to adapt. Even the poor, unloved, for so long, QR code finally got its day in the sun. <laughs> I feel happy for the QR code. <laughs> but 
And the truth of all of this is we saw over the past two years what short-term thinking can do. I'm not here to knock short-term thinking. We need the ability to pivot, to adapt, to be agile. Short-term thinking has its place. And it can't be the only way that we operate. I wrote a book that came out last fall called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And for me, one of the questions I really wanted to explore was how can we actually apply the principles of long-term thinking, the principles of strategic thinking to our own lives, to our own careers. Many of us do this for our businesses. For those of you who you know, are entrepreneurs or you work inside organizations, this is, this is something that we consciously try to do. You know, where are we going in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years? We often fail, though, to really apply that same lens to our own lives. There was a study that was done a few years ago by an organization called the Management Research Group. They surveyed 10,000 senior leaders, and of the 10,000, 97% said that the single most important thing they could do for the future of their organization, for their organization's success, was to be better long-term thinkers. 97%, literally almost everyone, thinks this is a good idea. And yet, a separate study that was done around the same time, 96% of the leaders surveyed said they didn't have time for strategic thinking. There is a huge disconnect going on in our own lives. We have to look at a longer time frame than almost anybody is used to, a time frame that is far beyond our own lifetimes in order to make smarter choices and better decisions. But I know also it can be challenging sometimes when we look at these timelines that are too big for the human mind to even really comprehend to think about how it plays out in our day to day. How do we apply it? How do we live it? What does it look like? And what it reminded me of is a quote from Rabbi Tarfon. This is somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, just after the destruction of the Second Temple in 79 AD. And he said, you're not required to complete the work of perfecting the world. But neither are you permitted to desist from trying. We can't do it all. We have to recognize that. We have to make peace with it. We're not going to get it all done. But there are things that we can do. There are things, in fact, that we have to do, that we are called upon to do. And so I wanted to share with you seven strategies that I hope might be helpful, that have informed my thinking and might be useful to you. One of the things that I realized is that for so many of us, what is lacking, what is profoundly lacking in our lives is white space. In a very literal sense, for most of us, if you look at your calendar, you're probably going to see a sea of blue, literally white space, time that is unspoken for, 
is probably pretty scarce. And it's not the worst thing in the world, but it has its consequences. A few years ago, I interviewed David Allen, and he told me something interesting. He said, it doesn't take a huge amount of time to have brilliant ideas, but what it takes is space. It's almost like a Zen koan if you roll it around in your head, but it's true, right? I mean, we all know if you have to come up with some innovation, some new idea, it's not oh, I need to set aside 40 hours and bang my head against the desk. That is not how the brilliant ideas come, right? It comes sometimes in a moment, in a flash. You're in the shower, you're walking, you're jogging, you're doing something. But what enables it to come is having the space to make the connections. We will never get that space if we are constantly pulled down by details, by worries, by ruminations, and by back-to-back -back meetings that are so intense we feel we can never catch up. We need white space if we are going to have the mental bandwidth to be able to even begin to engage in long-term thinking, to be able to step back enough from our present circumstances to entertain those questions. And so what I've realized in terms of how to get it, we have to be vigilant. We have to be really vigilant. Because the truth is, unfortunately, it is literally in everyone else's best interest for you to be at their beck and call. It is way more convenient for other people for you to respond within five minutes to their emails but it's not convenient for you or for your ability to do long-term thinking. The four questions that I like to ask when a request comes through. Number one, what is the actual cost involved? Sometimes we delude ourselves sometimes. People say, oh, you know, do you mind if I just pick your brain for a few minutes? <laughs> or whatever it is. And you realize, oh, all of a sudden the thing you say, well, it's just a few minutes. And suddenly the call becomes a coffee, suddenly you're driving, suddenly there's traffic, and two hours later, time has slipped away on something you didn't quite want to do. What is the total cost involved? Number two, what's the physical and emotional cost of the request? I think COVID has probably put this into sharper relief for most of us. There are times, frankly, when we are run down, times when we're burned out, times that are busy periods. And frankly, things need to clear a higher bar in order to be worthwhile to say yes. We have to think about those things. Number three, a question that I like to ask is, what's the opportunity cost? We so often, when we are considering a request, say, well, should I do this or should I not do this? That is actually the wrong question. The right question is, should I do this or should I do literally anything else in the universe that takes that amount of time? Our lives are one unit. We have to start thinking of them that way. And fourth and finally, 
Time is always helpful here, as long now fans know. How will you feel about this a year from now? Will you feel bad that you said no? Will you feel bad you didn't go do it? Or will it be forgotten? Distance can be helpful, but we have to fight for that white space as a prerequisite for the work that we want to do to clear the decks. Number two, if we are ever to truly excel at something, if we're willing to take what's necessary to be great, we have to be willing to choose what to be bad at. What are we willing to give up to get there? Most of us refuse to choose, and by not choosing, we stay average. That's when I learned that long-term thinking is in a lot of ways a test of character. It's a test of the courage to make choices. I'll give you an example. There was a bank that was actually a very successful bank. And this bank, they did something interesting. Unlike almost every other bank, these guys stayed open really late. They were open till eight o'clock weeknights. They were open on weekends. Fantastic, their customers loved it, obviously. But why doesn't every bank do it? You probably know the answer, which is that it's expensive. But what this bank did, they found a way to pay for it. The way they paid for it is they took the savings rate, the, the rate on savings deposits, they shrunk it down and made it almost non-existent. It was kind of terrible. <laughs> but to their customers, it didn't really matter. It was a lot more important. It was a lot more salient to be able to go to the bank at 7.30 at night. But most companies are not willing to make those hard choices, and most people are not either. Number three, we also have to balance our portfolio. One of the things that I learned that was a little uncanny to me, but of course, if you think about it long enough, it makes sense. As I was writing The Long Game, which is a book about strategic thinking, long-term thinking, as I was writing it, I began to realize, in so many ways, it felt like an investment book. I felt like I was writing a personal finance book. Of course, it's not about money or personal finance at all, but the principles about the compound value of one's time, one's energy, one's efforts are actually remarkably similar. And it's also true that we need to think about balancing our portfolios. For most of us, if you literally know one thing about personal finance, what you probably know is that it is a bad idea to put all your eggs in one basket, right? You don't want to own one stock. Most people think that's a pretty bad idea. You want to balance your portfolio. You want to have some of your money in cash and some of your money in moonshots, right? And it's true in investing. It's also true in our lives. So often, we tend to just focus in. We have our day job. Okay, we're doing our day job. The rest of our time might be taken up with family or other responsibilities. I want to urge you to think about carving out time. Maybe 20% is too much, fine. You can find 5%. But to think about what your speculative long-term activity is. What is your learning edge? Where are you 
growing. I'll give you an example of a fairly random thing that I have been doing for the past six years, which this is me, as you can probably see. I decided in 2016 that I wanted to learn how to write musical theater. And I had never done it before. I had no background. I had really no idea. But I set myself to it. And in the past six years, I have been accepted to and have completed one of the nation's top musical theater training programs. I've written a complete musical. I've done multiple musical theater fellowships. You've probably heard the saying that we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a day, and we tend to underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. I want to suggest that is even more true when we get to two years, five years, 10 years. You can go from a zero start to actually becoming quite accomplished at something if you give yourself enough time. Now, something that comes up a lot when it comes to long-term thinking and, and pursuing long-term projects is this question of when and whether to quit. Because the thing about a long-term project is that oftentimes it takes a and it can almost feel like you're going into a dark tunnel, right? Because you don't really know what's going on. You don't really know for sure if it's working. There are some people, like Picasso, that from the time he was young, he was in his early 20s, everybody said he was a genius. His whole life, everybody thought he was a genius. That is very handy if people say that about you. But the truth is, for most of us, we are not anointed in our 20s and celebrated for the duration of our entire lives. It doesn't really work that way. For a lot of us, our lives are a lot more like Cezanne. Cezanne was not recognized at all until he was in his mid to late 40s. Up until that point, nobody thought he was any good. And the hard part is he wondered if he was any good. You keep going because you think maybe, you think, you think you've got something, but maybe they're right and you're not. It can be hard to tell in the moment if something is not working or if something is not working yet. That's the question, right? In the midst of developing an exponential technology, there is something that they dubbed the deception phase. Now, what is that? Well, it turns out that in the early days of a technology, and you've probably seen this, in the early days of a technology, everybody thinks it's so cool. Oh, there's so much buzz, there's so much buzz. But you look at it, and after a while, it just seems like, huh, well, nothing's really happening. It's not really going anywhere. I've been hearing about this for 20 years. When's this actually going to pan out? So overblown. You hear that a lot. The truth is, if you're somebody who's close to the process, you know it. If you're moving forward with digital photography and you're able to get it from 0.01 pixels to 0.02 pixels to 0.04 pixels, that's actually kind of amazing, right? 0.08, moving on and on. It's actually kind of amazing progression. It's doubling, it's doubling, it's doubling. But the problem is that 
it's still invisible to the naked eye. The world around you, unless they are looking very closely, they can't tell the difference. And you know, or you hope, you think you know that you're making progress. But it's often very, very hard to drown out the voices of all the people around you saying, it's so overblown. That's the deception phase. Once we make enough progress to get from one to two to four to 16, all of a sudden people start to say, whoa, where did that come from? It's been doubling all along. They just couldn't see it. But for so many of us, if we're working on a project that's important to us, if we are building a career, things take time. Number five, strategic patience. Sometimes things do take a while, and that can be exceptionally annoying. <laughs> I don't like it that they take a while sometimes. But you know what? Being mad at the seed does not make the seed grow faster. It takes however long it takes. We recognize that. But it's also true that we don't have to be passive in the face of it. We don't have to just sit back and wait and hope. We can come up with hypotheses. We can be doing things. We can be testing things. We can be trying things that will help, that will hasten what we're doing. We have to be thoughtful about recognizing what it takes to get there. That it may take longer than we want but that we're willing to make that bet. We're willing to make that investment. There was an interview a decade ago in Wired Magazine. Jeff Bezos was interviewed, and they asked him, what is it that is Amazon's competitive advantage? Why is Amazon so successful? And what he said, I think, is quite powerful. He said, Amazon is willing to invest on a seven-year time frame. If it takes seven years for something to show a profit, it's okay. He said, our competitors are only willing to invest on a three-year time frame. They have to turn a profit within that time frame. If they don't, they're going to scrap it. They're not even going to try it. That is the competitive advantage. And I think there's something powerful in that. I mean, you can imagine this is true, right? In most corporations, whatever executive is spearheading the initiative he or she might be gone in three years. Why would they bother? Why would they bother to invest in an initiative that someone else is going to get the glory for? The incentives are not lined up right. But if we are willing to make choices to defer the gratification, because the, the good news, we're still going to be us in seven years. The benefits will accrue to us in our lives, in our careers, in the impact that we want to make. If we can be willing to outweight and outlast the people around us, if we can be willing to endure the deception phase for longer, it enables us to tackle bigger, harder, more meaningful, more strategic problems. Number six, fail fast. We know that failure in many places around the world is stigmatized pretty heavily. 
You get one chance, you blow it, all right, sorry, no more chances. It's also important to recognize that something is not a failure until you call it. It's not a failure until you stop trying. And I'll give you one example from my own career. I wanted to be in academia. I, I was one of the, you know, kind of geeky people that loved school. I loved uh, my professors. I admired them so much. And so after I finished college, I got a master's degree. After I finished my master's degree, I said, well, I want to do this. I want to be a professor. And so I applied to three different doctoral programs, and I got turned down by all of them. <laughs> I didn't even have a plan B. I assumed I would get into one. I had good grades. It was shocking to me that I did not get into any of them. I didn't know what to do. And I came up with a plan B pretty fast. I got a job as a journalist and I thought, okay, well, there's writing, you know, there's, there's, you know, asking questions and being intellectually curious. Today, I actually have managed to find a way in the side door. I teach for two different top 10 business schools for Duke and Columbia. I don't have a PhD. I don't have an MBA. I went to liberal arts schools. I didn't even take any college business classes. I was able to climb in the side window of academia by networking and connecting and getting experience and not giving up on my vision of being able to be part of the academy and teaching and learning and things that were important. It felt at the time when I was 22 like the door was being shut forever, but it's actually pretty rare that the door is shut forever. The last point that I wanted to make is that as we think about our own long-term future, our own long-term vision, in a lot of ways, the North Star that we can look to is a really simple question. What kind of person do you want to be? This is a friend of mine. Her name is Alyssa Cohn. I write about her in The Long Game. And the reason I like her story Alyssa, maybe like some of you guys, was a huge Hamilton fan. She was really into it. And when she learned that Lin-Manuel Miranda had a new side project, she was all in on it. She learned about Freestyle Love Supreme. It was a show on Broadway. It's a freestyle hip-hop improv rap show. And even better, they created an academy it was a training program to teach regular people how to do freestyle hip-hop rap, just like the performers. She immediately said, I'm in, that sounds great. And she envisioned a cool, fun class where lots of other Hamilton fans like her were learning to rap. She shows up for class. And when she shows up, she realizes it's Alyssa and about 20 guys who are all about two decades younger than her and who are all extremely good rappers. <laughs> this was not very comfortable. After the first class, completely chastened, completely mortified by her inability to uh, immediately break out into rap, she emailed the instructor 
And she said, I'm really sorry to do this. I feel like I should withdraw. I, I, it's just, you know, I don't fit in. I don't, I don't think I can do this. And he wrote back to her with some incredibly wise words. He said, Alyssa, the goal is not to turn you into a professional rapper. The goal is to help you become a more creative and uninhibited person. And she thought about it and she realized, oh right, that is my goal. <laughs> she kept taking the classes. She spent two months every Monday night taking the hip hop, improv, beatbox, rap classes. And just before the world shut down in 2020, she gave a concert performance with her class and she had friends from all over see her perform improv rap. She got so into it, she even made a YouTube rap video. But ultimately the question that I think all of us can ask ourselves as we think long-term, as we think about our vision for our own lives and how we want to lead them, is what kind of person do you want to be? What are you optimizing for? Thank you. I think one of the things that you brought up in the book that um, that I appreciated is that this idea that we kind of obsess on on being busy and you, you know you ask somebody how they're doing and often the answer is I'm so busy um, but also that that is a reflection on um, making us feel important and how, how that one of the things you kind of have to get over this what I came to realize was in a lot of ways our in our contemporary American society, so much of our sense of personal meaning derives from work, from you know the, the work that we do or who we are in the professional world. I realized that philosophy and theology actually aren't that far off from it, that if we really want to, to meet people where they're at and address their sense of who they are in the world and what is the impact they can make in the world, that bringing some of these philosophical considerations to bear uh, is important. There's been some fascinating research, uh, notably by Sylvia Baletza at Columbia University, that's talked about exactly this point, that in many cultures, most notably American culture, busyness really is a form of status signaling, that we are essentially finding a kind of politically correct way of saying, oh, I'm so popular, I'm so in demand, you know, I'm awesome. And it's, uh, we don't necessarily think of ourselves as doing it, but it's actually a little bit obnoxious and we need to stop. Right, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, true, the, the true power is being able to schedule the downtime, which I think you, know, you talked about. And I, I, one of my favorite things is when I'm gonna do a trip or something and then all of a sudden it gets canceled and then I realize I have this openness in my calendar. Um, but I think it's an interesting idea of how to, I mean, have you thought about some of the techniques for how, how to do this in your life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When it comes to actually, you know, sort of managing calendars and carving things out, one of the, the principles that has been most helpful to me, uh, again, to give a little Silicon Valley shout out is a concept that Paul Graham, uh, the founder of Y Combinator has talked about. Um, he's written about manager schedule and maker schedule. And 
the way that it's sort of played out in his essay was you think about you know a manager at a tech company and they're having meetings they're supervising things they're keeping the projects going uh makers in in his world probably coders are people who need large blocks of unstructured time so they can dive in and immerse themselves in projects what i've actually found is that for most professionals certainly this is true for me we actually kind of have to do both, right? It can't be one or the other. And so I've modified this. And in terms of my own scheduling, I have, uh, for the past few years, followed a, a principle where I have what I call maker days and manager days. And so I deliberately try to pack all my meetings into one or two days so that I'm just kind of going, I'm knocking them out. And then, frankly, those are tiring days. But what it enables, what it allows, is for me to have the completely unstructured maker days. And I use that for writing or for, you know, so-called deep work, um, which is actually quite quite effective to be able to do it. It's it's really hard to get into high quality work when you only have a, you know, half an hour in between meetings. I'm actually curious, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a, of a heavy mantle to uh, to be running the Log Now Foundation <laughs> and to in some ways be this like you know paragon of long term thinking and yet have to run an organization that has so many day to day responsibilities like any organization. How do you thread that needle? How do you feel like you try to live out the principles in terms of how you conduct your work? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're trying to run a ten thousand year organization, you have to keep that perspective, but you also have to get some things done. Um, and so that um, I think it's it's a balance, but I think what's what's nice about having that perspective is that, I th and you had a slide up here, is that you don't have to finish the work. Um, and so that I think to that point, it's to me it's like how do I start the work in a way that somebody else can finish it and that I can hand it off at some point. Um, but it's it's actually very much on our mind right now because we we're just passing 25 years and we we are going to have to do a generational shift. So I've, um, one of the projects I've been working on is researching how everybody else has had long-term institutions. So it's very early in that research. So I don't have the answers yet, but I, I hope to get a lot of good stories from the longest-lived organizations in the world and be able to come back and, and talk about them at some point. So yeah, it's, uh, it's very much on my mind um, for sure. And I think the you mentioned like how, you know, when, when you have good ideas is not when you're overworked. Um, and you know the certainly the best ideas you know that I've ever had have come in the, the interstitial times. Um, but you also have to load that with the brain, like with the parts of it that um, kind of inform you to it. And so that balance is something that I'm curious at what you think about is how do you get enough kind of the information in in, but then have the downtime to to think about it? yeah, it is it is an interesting balance and an interesting challenge. I remember, when I was in college and when I was in graduate school, I actually stopped reading for pleasure. I'm not sure if this was the case for, for other people as well, but I had always been, as a kid, a huge reader. I loved reading. And now, you know, as an adult, I read all the time. But when I was in school and was essentially being forced uh, to read hundreds of pages of pretty dense text, every week, uh, when it became my job, it was no longer fun to do it recreationally. And something that had been quite important to me kind of atrophied in that way. And I think that 
for me, one of the concepts that, that I was mentioning in the talk about white space, I think part of why that's so resonant is that what I've come to believe is that for a lot of us, you know, for a lot of, you know, white collar knowledge workers, the truth is most of our jobs are actually pretty cool. Most of it is actually pretty fun. Not all of it, of course. I mean, you know, you can't, it would be impossible to dream up a job where literally you loved every single thing. But for many of us, we are in the extremely fortunate position where most of what we do is actually quite interesting and quite meaningful. But, there's a big but, it's that we often are forced to do so much of it in such a compressed amount of time that we actually have a hard time enjoying any of it. Even if on its own it would be fun, it would be interesting, it would be good, it's really hard to enjoy something when you're in a speed round or, you know, when you, you know, one scoop of ice cream is great, uh, eating 25 scoops of ice cream is gonna make you throw up. And so I think the question is, how can we just buy ourselves a little bit more margin? Because just even a little bit more space in our lives to be able to slow down, to appreciate things, to be in the moment is what is going to give us the ability to have that balance, to have the inputs, but be able to think about it and do something about it. Um, there's a uh, folk band that I really like called the Neilds, and they have a, a song lyric that I think applies in many ways to our present predicament. Um, they, uh, they say that the difference between neurosis and psychosis is only two hours of sleep. <laughs> and I, I think it, with our jobs and with our professional lives, it's actually pretty similar that, you know, most of us have probably tried to optimize and life hack our way to a lot of things, right? I, I am making an educated guess here that most people in this, uh, in this auditorium are not actually the people who are spending 17 hours a week watching television, right? It's not like, oh, just watch less television. You can get it all done. Like, no, I get it. That's not what you're doing. You are actually legitimately incredibly busy. But the battle in many ways is one at the edges. This is about reclaiming even an hour, two hours if we can manage, but even an hour a week if we can weed whack our way through it, if we can fend off excess commitments, and frankly, no one else is going to do it for you. You have to be the vigilant gatekeeper here. But if you can buy yourself back an hour a week, it gives you space to be able to enjoy things a little bit more and to just think a little bit more clearly, to begin to get that space that's necessary for long-term thinking. Indeed. Um, took a couple of questions from the audience here. Elizabeth um, is asking, what are you personally bad at? Or what have you decided to, to be bad at? Um, and how has this worked in your strategy? Oh, it's such a good question. Uh, so one thing that I am super deliberately bad at is I have never really learned to cook properly. And so I live part-time in New York and uh, I buy all my food. I just buy it out. And uh, in Miami, I uh, I pay someone to make meals for me. Uh, I I have just realized it's not 
it's not worth the the time and the learning. Some people actually really relax in the kitchen. I find it incredibly stressful. So <laughs> I've, I've given up on that. We have to be willing to make the choice and to understand, all right, I may not be able to prioritize this or to go all in on this at this time. Nice. Yeah, I chose to never match my socks again. I got all black socks. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how much time that saves me, but a lot less cognitive load on my socks anyway. Um, and Mariana Senko um, is asking, I think, maybe how to expand this thinking more in institutionally, given that the majority of our institutions and companies exist on the short timelines, decades at best. How, how could we incentivize them in a more institutional environment? I, and, I, and even to that point, one of the things I've learned in the, my research about long-lived companies is that the Fortune 500 companies have in the 1950, we're lasting 61 years, and now they're less than 18 years old uh, before. So there's, we're losing almost one year per year of, of corporate longevity um, in and of itself. So it's an interesting statistic for how that's working. Yes. Well, I, I am super eager for your research, Sandra, because I feel like you are going to answer this question in a very <laughs> definitive sure. way. Oh, thank you. But I also, I, I think it's, it's hard, honestly. I mean, a big part of the reason going back to one of the points in the talk, a, a huge reason that Amazon is able and willing to make long-term choices is, well, the guy who started it was running it. And he was very comfortable with that from the beginning. I mean, you know, props, props where it's due. Um, Jeff Bezos was willing to beat the drum from the minute Amazon went public, don't expect profits, don't expect profits, we are reinvesting. And that was, that was the terms. Um, they were uh, very deliberate about reattaching that letter, that original shareholder letter, to every subsequent shareholder letter as a reminder for anyone who might erroneously think that profits would be coming. I mean, now, of course, profits are rolling in, but it took a really long time because they were willing to defer, 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 and invest. And I actually think that that structurally, it is ex extremely hard because if you do not have the owner uh, who is uh, running it, you have a lot of people who in our current climate, I mean, I know people at the Long Now Foundation are in it for the long term. You have been here from the beginning. I know Danielle has been here for 16 years. I mean, the longevity is amazing because of um, because of the the commitment, the commitment to the vision and that sort of shared understanding. But in most corporate jobs, I mean, we know this. If somebody stays, you know, 25 years, 16 years at a corporate job, we're like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God, they're from the 50s. Uh, it's incredibly rare. And as a result of that, um, people are making choices that are optimized for themselves rather than for the entity. And so if you have a super mission-driven organization where everyone is bought into that shared vision, which you know that, that's a, a powerful thing for a company to create, then we might be able to overcome the natural bias of self-interest. But without that, it's, it's really hard to do. Um, Adam is asking, um, what is some long-term thinking or strategic advice that you think is dangerous or disagree with? That's great. Dangerous long-term thinking. Well, I, I think that it an example of, of you know dangerous long-term thinking would be this. 
in general, we know human nature is optimized for the short term, right? I mean, for any of us, just rationally, if you can have a good thing now, or if you can have a good thing in 20 years, well, sure, let's take the good thing now. That's, that's sort of how we are. We have to consciously override it to become sufficient long-term thinkers. And for some things you need to, because for certain meaningful, hard, worthy goals, you're only gonna get there. The only path to it is long-term thinking. In general, that is a good thing. It is worth aspiring to. Where it becomes dangerous is the following. And my friend Marshall Goldsmith, he says that something that we often um, fail to, to do, you know, we get so good at saving for the rainy day. We get so good at deferring gratification. Some of us actually err on the side of never properly celebrating our accomplishments. I don't, I don't think it, you could call it a real success for somebody to die at the end of their lives um, just having kept their head down and had this onerous, grueling existence because they keep putting it off for another day, another day, another day, and they never actually get to enjoy the fruits of what they've done. And it doesn't mean you blow it. It doesn't mean that you are celebrating excessively or you're not putting aside money for charity or for relatives or things like that. But I, I think it's uh, this kind of abstemiousness can become a self-perpetuating cycle. And it's important to celebrate the victories and it's important to enjoy our lives along the way. Yeah. Now, if you've ever sat with somebody who's passed, passing away, they never sit there and say, I wish I worked harder. They usually say, I wish I took that vacation. So, yeah. Um, so we're going we're gonna to wrap this up, but, um, but Kevin Kelly is going to get the, the last question. Um, what is your tenure project that you are working on? So my tenure project, I alluded to this a little bit uh, during, during the talk. I went to see Fun Home, which won the 2016, yes, won the 2016 Tony Award, a really amazing show. And the truth was I had lived in New York about a year and a half by that point. I had only been to one Broadway show. I really hadn't taken advantage of that. But I saw this show and it just hit me. And I went home and I woke up the next morning and I was seized with this feeling with this, this, this sense that I needed to learn to write musical theater. And I decided to pursue that. And I have done so since then. And so I, I've taken you know, trainings and fellowships and, and moved it forward. But what I've come to learn is that the average show, it's, it's a long process, it takes about seven years on average, seven or eight years for a show to go from inception to actually making it to Broadway. There's a lot of steps along the way. So in 2016, I decided that I would create a 10-year goal for myself to have a show on Broadway for the 2026 season. So we're in 2022, so I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's really great. Thank you all. A key part of Dory's strategy for bringing long-term thinking into our day-to-day -day lives is the idea of white space. That means actually scheduling downtime, just like you would schedule work time, in order to develop the mental capacity for long-term thinking. Similarly, in a past talk with filmmaker Tiffany Schlein, she discussed the benefits of her practice of taking a tech Shabbat. 
a day where she and her family don't use screen technology every week in order to reflect on and appreciate life. So my father, he was a surgeon. He wrote actually a lot about the brain and, and eye contact and how much that shaped evolution. And about 10 years ago, he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And he was given nine months to live. And we were incredibly close. When he was dying, all I thought about was being present and what does it mean to be present. And he, he was very present. He was a very present person. People usually said, you know, he made you feel like the most important person in the room. The same week I found out that he had brain cancer, um, Ken and I found out that I was pregnant. And so it was like this nine-month period that I can't really articulate, although all I just thought about was life and death. From the, like, literally the week of his diagnosis, they said he was going to live nine months, and sure enough, he died at nine months. Several days later, our daughter was born. I thought a lot about how we were living, and I didn't like how distracted I was feeling, and, and when I would visit him, I would turn off my phone, I was so with him. And it just put everything in such stark contrast. We only have 30,000 days on this earth, and it just made me think about, you know, what are you going to do when you're here? How do you want to live when you're here? So Ken and I started turning off all screens from Friday night to Saturday night, 10 years ago, and we called it our Tech Shabbats. And I should tell you, we are Jewish, Any Jews in the house? Couple, good, nice, representing. Um, we're not religious Jews, um, but we love the rituals, and we love this ritual of Shabbat. But we used to just maybe do a Friday night dinner, and that was it. But really what Shabbat is about, if you're a really religious Jew, is a full day of rest. And if you are a religious Jew, you do not drive, you do not use electricity, you don't use money. You don't do anything that's work-related for a full 24 hours. Actually, they say 25 hours. Now, what's really interesting is that every different culture had a day of rest as a value. It was different days of the week. It's called the Sabbath, Shabbat. But every different culture had one, but really only the most observant people do it now. And my favorite Jewish philosopher, Heschel, called it a palace in time. And I love this idea that it's one day that... Remember when this, on Sundays when all the stores used to be closed, and it, the day felt different, right? And now we don't really have that as much anymore. I like to think that Buddha, he was in a state of Shabbat just all the time, because <laughs> he was totally present, always. And I love that this is a thousands, talk about long-term thinking and the long now. This is a thousands-year-old idea, and there's some serious wisdom in a full day of rest. It has been around a long time. I mean, it is the fourth commandment. It is above do not murder, is take a complete day off of work. And what does work mean in the 21st century? The screens. The screens are such a combination of absolutely everything. They are, of course, leisure and connecting, but when you have to photograph and filter and caption your leisure, that's work too. So we never get a moment off. And when we do this day off, it is our favorite day of the week. We've been doing it for 10 years. Now, an interesting thing about Shabbat is it's supposed to be a day of joy. It is not being deprived of your screens. It is not being deprived of working. It is actually everything you get back. Even if you're a religious Jew, it's a mitzvah to have sex on Shabbat. It's supposed to be a day full of delight. And I think that we need to bring this concept back of a, day, a true day of rest. What does that mean today, to you today in the 21st century? And what is your palace in time? And every great wisdom practice 
And again, I'm not a religious person, but I love thinking about the essence of what the wisdom is about. Every every wisdom practice talks about the importance of silence and reflection. And we have created a society where there's absolutely no room for any reflection. The minute you have a second, you pull out that phone. The minute you have a moment, you're optimizing and listening to a podcast and doing and being. And there's not a second to just be and think and reflect. And there's a couple miraculous things that happen when we turn off the screens once a week. And one of them is when we turn off the screens, talking about time, time slows down. Because, you know, when you're on the technology, everything's going so quickly. And even Einstein's theory of relativity was that things are relative to your state state of motion. And on the phones, our state of motion is going so fast all the time that it's just like speeding everything off. When you turn it off, it slows down. So this is what I think our Saturdays feel like. And remember how I told you how I'm in a constant state of want online? When we turn off the screens, I am in a constant state of appreciation. When you're online, it's everything you don't have and everywhere that you're not. And when you turn it off, it's like, look at what's right in front of me, my home, my family, these flowers. I am so grateful. I am like filled with so much gratitude on Saturdays. And there's so much neuroscience research that the more you recognize gratitude and call it out, the more happier you'll be, the more grateful you'll be. You know, the thing that you do again and again repeats again and again. So if your child is always flipping their wrist when they're bored, or if you are flipping your wrist every second you're bored, that's what you will become wired to do. The other thing that we've noticed is I feel incredibly uh, creative on the Saturdays. And it is because, you know, we're constantly putting so much input in our minds, but creativity really comes from making unusual connections for what's already in your mind. So you need to give your space in your brain to play with everything that's already in there. So I notice on our tech Shabbats, I spend a lot of time daydreaming. I come up with my best ideas on Saturday. It's so wonderful, because you know what happens when we have a question? Oh, we have two kids, by the way. We have a teen. We have a 16-year-old and a 10-year-old. People can't believe that they love it, and they love it too. Even our teen says, pretty much her whole junior year, every Saturday, when we're, at some point when we're lying in a state of doing nothing, she goes, I'm so glad that we have a day off. I don't have to do homework. I don't have to be on, just for one day. And when we have a question on Tech Shabbat, you know what we have to do? We have to ponder. Pondering is a wonderful thing. It's a lost art. We can look up everything. You don't have to, like, wonder kill it on Google, but just I wonder what the answer to that is, and I'm just going to have to sit with that question and just think about it. The other thing that Ken and I notice is that we are the most productive on Sunday. Now, we're only taking one day off, but it's like we feel like just by this one true day of rest that we can truly recharge in a way that we don't the rest of the week. And Steve Jobs used to call the Macintosh the bicycle for the mind, but I think that was when it was a lot more freeing. But now I think a blank notepad is a bicycle for the mind because... There's so many ulterior motives coming at us so much when we're online now, so many people trying to capture our attention and sell us things and influence our thoughts. And so this has been a real sanctuary for us. This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you like this podcast, or if you know people who could benefit from more long-term thinking in their lives, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience. So anytime you rate or leave a review of the podcast or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, watch the talks online, or become a member, 
go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talks you've heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07-003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to talking with you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.